Hello, everyone, and uh, thanks for joining us on this Wednesday evening for the uh, Writers Guild of Alberta's online reading series. And uh, my name is Stephen Sandor, uh, WGA member and author and editor of Edify Magazine. And I'm pleased to introduce uh, Dan Martin, author of An Orphan's Journey, uh, which he will be reading from in just a couple of minutes, and then we'll talk about the book a little bit afterwards and, and his work. But uh, just to give you an idea, uh, Dan, Dan is, this is, I believe, his fourth book. Uh, he is a semi-retired psychotherapist who lives here in Edmonton. Uh, I'll ask him a little bit later about what semi-retired means. Um, he's also got a lot of experience with the wilderness and the wild, and uh, he grew up from a family of guides and outfitters in northern Alberta, and he's a former licensed game guide himself. So pretty wide range of interests from, a, from psychotherapy to the outdoors. And uh, he's also uh, worked, and some of his books take from the fact that he is uh, worked uh, as a psychotherapist counseling some male offenders, children who've been victims of abuse, uh, psychopathic personalities, as well as, you know, ordinary people who are dealing with things like depression and, and, and or life adjustment problems. As I said, he's independently published four novels, a couple of short stories, and he's working on a fifth novel, uh, Taming Spirit. Uh, if you want to learn more about him uh, after we've uh, done this uh, chat, danmartinbooks.com danmartinbooks.com is the uh, best place to find out about him. And uh, just before I uh, let Dan take it away, um, Online Book Club just uh, reviewed uh, An Orphan's Journey, and I'm just going to quote this. It says, this plot is exciting, and each character played their roles perfectly. I gave the book four out of four stars. Now, you're not here to see me. You're here to, to listen to Dan. So I'll let him take it away from here. Okay, well, Jason, thank you very, very much um, for that warm and gracious introduction. Um, I hope that you can still hear me. Uh, before we, before I get into the reading, I would just like to uh, to, to quickly mention that uh, there's two protagonists in my book. Um, one is my orphan, um, Patrick, who has no memory of his past or what his name is. Uh, or where he's been in life uh, prior to coming to an orphanage. Uh, my other protagonist is uh, Jesse, who's a psychiatric uh, social worker, recently graduated from McGill University. And in Edmonton uh, with the Children's Aid Society on his uh, first assignment. And the book is set in the early 1950s. Uh, so with that, I'd like to uh, start the reading. Uh, my first, uh, uh, I'll start right out with chapter one, Patrick. I woke up from a deep sleep to find my shelter being ripped apart. Nails were shrieking beside me, tearing through boards that I had pounded in place. The side of my dwelling crashed to the ground as a blast of sunlight came through the darkness blinding me. The shadow of a man's head broke through the opening. He spoke with an official voice. You can't stay here, kid. Gather your stuff and come with me. Two guys with sledgehammers and wrecking bars walked away, leaving the guy with the official voice standing in the alley, staring down at me. You have any belongings in there? He asked as he bent over, trying to see inside the cavern I had built under an abandoned staircase. I didn't say nothing, just grabbed my bag with dumpster stuff in it and crawled out into the alley. Come along now, youngster, he said as he put his hand on my shoulder and I walked beside him down the alley to a busy street and a parked car. He opened the passenger door, pulled the seat forward, 
and I crawled into the back. He didn't say nothing else, just slammed the door, turned onto the street and sped away from all the downtown noise. I had no idea where he was going and I didn't feel awake yet. So I laid my head back against the seat and closed my eyes. I felt the terrible mystery coming over me again. I searched the darkness inside my brain, trying to move back to remember where I came from, to make sense of things that entered my brain for barely a second and were gone. Far away, there were voices that always seemed familiar and I listened, but I couldn't make them out who they were or what they were saying and a terrible loneliness would follow. Smells came too sometimes like something dead or warm blood inside my nostrils, but there was nothing else. I'd get images coming into my head of men arguing, knives slashing at people, but I felt nothing, no fear or anything. Sometimes there were no pictures in my mind at all, just a terrible panic feeling that came out of nowhere and grabbed me in a tight grip, froze my brain shut and sent my heart pounding and sweat breaking out all over me for no reason that I could think of or remember. Finally, the panic waves would stop and a blackness came through that drove away the terror. Then nothing else would come for a very long time and life would seem just normal again. I always found food to eat that people threw away, especially back alley dumpsters behind downtown restaurants. Other people showed up to eat too. Sometimes mean looking guys would come, but we shared and I never had any trouble. I made myself a good place to sleep that I figured was well hid a place I felt safe most of the time, except sometimes it got cold inside. I decided I'd have to snitch some blankets, maybe off a clothesline somewhere before it got really cold. The driver suddenly slowed, slowed and turned into a narrow road that twisted downhill through overhanging brush towards a large brick building at the bottom. The building sat on a grassy meadow between a brush-lined creek and a wide rolling river a faded road sign at the entrance read Ross Flats Orphanage. A thin middle-aged woman waited on the bottom step. She struggled to get onto her feet, came over to the car and stuck her face in the window. Frank, she asked the driver from Children's Aid. That's me, he said, pushing his cap back and wiping his sweaty forehead. And who have we here? She said, looking back at me. She had pale eyes and an upturned nose. She was pretending to be nice, but I knew she was only trying to decide if she would like me. His name is Patrick, the driver responded. I have some papers. We think we might have the right ones. We found him sleeping under a back alley staircase downtown. No guardians have been located. <clears throat> she opened the front passenger door and moved back. Welcome to your new home, Patrick. I pushed the seat forward to crawl out amidst a cloud of dust as she reached for my hand. I wanted nothing to do with her and she finally moved out of the way so I could get through. Very well then, she said with a hint of annoyance. The driver stretched his arm across the seat, passed her the papers and pulled the door shut behind me. He drove off without a goodbye, just a crunch of gravel and a trail of dust. Come along, said the woman, stepping clear of the car. You can call me Miss McNabb. She stood back again, her pale eyes skimmed me over top to bottom. I'm sure I was a ragged wretch to her clean-faced way of looking at things. It must have been a very difficult time for you, she said. I didn't like her right off. She kept pretending to know who I was or how I felt, and she didn't know shit. We'll get you started in your new home, she said, and beckoned me with a nod of her head to follow. 
I stayed a few steps behind so I could look around. Everything was tall. The place had a high entrance leading to the double doors. Three stories of brick wall loomed above and each level had a row of small windows with crossbars. I could hear the racket of kids playing on the other side. She stopped to wait for me, waving her hand impatiently towards the doors. Hurry now, we have much to do getting you settled, she said. I walked beside her up the flight of stone steps to a landing, stopping at high wooden doors with brass knockers in the middle of them, uh, in the middle of worn down circles. She banged on one of them hard twice, waited, then sighed and pulled a long key with arms like a Jesus cross from her waist pocket. She stuck the key into a scratched up keyhole as round as a dime, twisted the key and pushed the door open with her shoulder. She placed her thumb and forefinger gingerly around the back of my collar and ushered me inside. I'll take your coat here, she said. I unzipped and passed it to her. She hung it on a hanger beside a few others. You can retrieve it later after we find you a room. Then she plastered on a fake smile and asked, so Patrick, what should I call you? Do you like Patty, Patrick, or maybe just Pat? I didn't answer. She glanced at my papers. Okay, then she said it will be Patrick. Patrick Price, because that's what your papers say. I followed her up a dark stairway with a polished banister that seemed newer than the creaking old stairs. At the very top, she turned down a short hallway where she opened a door. Damp air rolled out that smelled like wet dog. This is where you get cleaned up with brand new clothes, Patrick. She pulled out her key again and opened an iron chute on the wall. I'll give you a few minutes to peel off your old ones and drop them in this chute that takes them to the basement for fumigation. She eyed me up and down. So what are you, she added, I think about size 12, give or take. I didn't answer. She opened a high closet full of clothes stacked on shelves and rows of identical brown shoes on the closet floor, ranging from infant to man size. She searched in the middle of the clothing pile and pulled out pants, shirt, underwear, and was rummaging when the shoes through the shoes when I told her. I'm keeping my own. She stood up, her eyebrows folding together in a deep furrow. I felt something in me like there was going to be a fight, but she seemed to have a change of heart. Finally, she asked, you mean the shoes? Well, I guess they don't look too bad. They're pretty new. Actually, I think too big for you, but keep them if it pleases you. Before you change, you need a bath. There is soap in there and I can wash your back if you want. No, thanks, I responded. Very well, she replied, turning to open the door. Then she turned back. I'll be here again in 15 minutes and I expect you to have yourself cleaned up and ready. And don't forget to scrub your hair. Try to run a comb through it if you can. It was a relief to see her go. I walked to a small window and pulled back a damp curtain. I must have been looking out at opposite, opposite ends of where we drove in, but I could still see the river bending wide around the place and then rolling away from everything and everybody. I wondered where it went. Turning back to the tub, now half full of lukewarm water, I slid in, soaked off and got out. I didn't like the new clothes. They were stiff and everything was loose. I tucked in the shirt, cinched the belt up, sat on a chair by the door and waited for her to show up. She finally came, wrapped quickly and walked inside. I see you're ready. Follow along then, I'll show you your, you your room first. It's boys on the third floor and girls on the second. All your meals are on the main floor. She led me down another long, barely lit hallway with brown walls and worn linoleum floors. Every door we passed had a brass number. She chattered all the way. 
I guess it was supposed to be my introduction to the place. In the basement is the boiler room, the furnace room, and the detention rooms are down there too, but you don't go there unless we take you. She stopped in front of room 24, wrapped quickly and walked in. A kid was sitting on the edge of his bed, whittling on a willow stick with a jackknife and dropping the shavings into a busted up tin garbage can. David, this is Patrick. He will be sharing the room with you since Eugene found the new mommy and daddy. David didn't look up. He just whittled harder on the stick. Now, David, you're not supposed to have that, remember? I already took it away once. She stuck out her hand. David folded the blade back inside the jackknife and passed it to her without looking up. Patrick, you'll keep your things in here, she said as she opened a narrow closet that stood against the wall with varnish starting to, to peel. The door stuck and she yanked on it open. It looked like the, to open. It looked like the whole thing could topple over without much help, and it smelled like mothballs inside. I'll leave you two now. Dinner is in an hour. Why don't you show Patrick around outside where you should be with the rest? She left. <clears throat> David pulled a knife from his pocket and began whittling on the stick some more, making an ever longer and sharper point. You got another knife? I asked. Nope. Same one, he said, with barely a glance in my direction. I didn't say anything. He kept whittling, but now carefully working around the handle, carving out diamond shapes where the grip would be. He glanced over at me a few seconds longer this time, sizing me up. First time here, he asked. I didn't answer. Then I asked, how'd you get your knife back? He kept carving out the diamonds, but a half smirk showed up on his face. She never gets it. He continued to carve. Finally, he spoke, and I think he was dying to tell me anyway. Not much room in here, as you can see. She always noses around bumping into everything. She doesn't even feel it when I slip into her apron pocket and help myself to whatever she's got in there. He looked at me again, a bit suspicious this time. You're not a rat, are you? No, I said. He stopped working on the stick for a long moment and looked me over top to bottom. I guess he must have been okay with what he saw. He smirked again and turned back to carving on the handle. I lifted her key that opens everything in the place. I made an imprint on a gob of gum. Then I dropped the key beside the detention door where she thinks I'd never been. So she'd figure she just dropped it herself. She's pretty dumb, actually. Then it was easy. I cut a splinter from under the banister. It's hardwood, you know. And I carved out the key from it. It took a couple of tries and some work, but I got it. So now I can get into anything and nobody else knows, except now you do. He looked up at me again. I guess we're roommates now, so do you want to see it? I was pretty sure he wanted to show me anyway, but I said, sure. He leaned back on his bunk, fishing around in his baggy pockets until he brought out the key. It looked exactly like the Jesus cross key that Miss McNabb used to let me in the place, except wooden. He held it out, and I took it for a look. It was not just carved perfectly, but sanded somehow, with all the wood grain showing and smooth as a doorknob. I didn't doubt it worked. I think he saw I was impressed because I couldn't help but rub it all over between my forefinger and thumb. I gave it back and he shoved it down deep into his po pocket. Then he stood his spear in the corner, placed his hands behind his head and leaned back against the wall. Maybe we can be a team, he said, looking squarely at me this time. I decided it wouldn't hurt to have somebody on my side, at least to start out with, since I was brand new here. <clears throat> I gave a slight nod and looked him squarely back in his eyes. I guess from that, he considered it a deal. 
you need to follow my lead on things then. You want to survive around here? I'll help you just like I saved Eugene's ass a lot of times. He looked away like he was pretty pleased with himself. First thing you need to know about is Jack, he said, and his satisfied expression gave into a look that was somber and dead serious. He's 14. How old are you? 12, I said. It was a wild guess by the clothes Miss McNabb picked out. Me too. Jack and two others are 14, but most kids are around our age or younger. I think everybody is scared of Jack, even his own gang. That's Jasper, Ernest, and a few more. Then he added, except me. I'm not really as scared of him because I know how to handle him. Know what I mean? I nodded just so he would keep talking, explaining the important things. He continued with a half-caught kind of smirk growing on his face like he'd figured out a, a few things about Jack. He always gets McNabb and the others to like him. He's pretty smart that way. He can be nice to their face, calls them Miss McNabb or Mr. McLaughlin. Then they treat him good, and I heard McNabb tell McLaughlin, Jack is such a nice boy. When they aren't around, he calls Miss McNabb Big Face and Mr. McLaughlin Donkey Dong. He turned away and scowled as if he'd bit into something bitter. Then he continued, Jack's always on time for things like meals, classes, and pretends to turn in early, but he doesn't really. The rest of the time he plans ahead. Evil things, David added, looking squarely at me again. If you don't do what Jack wants, he gets you, either one way or the other. So if you can pass him a stick of gum every now and then, if you want him to really leave you alone, get cigarettes and pass him one or two when nobody's looking. That way it will be better for you. Get on the bad side of Jack and you'll regret it, David said it in a tough guy kind of way, like for like as if for a few seconds he was Jack. Um, so that's uh, all in there. I, I believe that's about uh, about my time up. Okay. All right. So we're back. We'll have a, a Q&A portion and you know, we'll also be looking out for questions from the audience. Um, just type them in to your comment box or what have you, and they will be forwarded to us here in the Zoom control area uh, for if you have any questions for Dan uh, about his book, about his process, about uh, publishing. Um, yeah, be happy to have you, but uh, I'll get it started by asking uh, some questions about the book. And I, and, and I, I guess the first thing is you talk about Ross, Ross Flats Orphanage and, and it being a, a spot in Edmonton. And I was thinking about setting a book in 1952, I believe this book is set in or early 1950s. Um, and why, why did you choose to go there and, and, and how much uh, research or how much knowledge did you have of the orphanage and what went on there? Oh, okay. Well, I like the question. Um, if I can just show you uh, the uh, uh, cover of my book. Incidentally, my book was um, designed for me by a man named Istvan Kadar, because I think he does great work. Um, incidentally, I love this kid. Uh, he's a model and an actor, and he uh, sent me a number of pictures for my cover, and I thought he... Uh, I thought he pinned my kid perfectly with his picture, but I was talking. But I meant to describe something about the uh, picture here, which is actually a picture of the uh, Ross Flats Orphanage, uh, which is a historic site in Edmonton. Uh, it's currently a senior's apartment, and um, I have, uh, as it turns out, I, I have a 
a bit of a personal connection with the orphanage. Um, I, find, I found out much later in life that I had an aunt uh, that none of us knew about and she kind of discovered us uh, from a rather prolific grandfather, I suppose, who left a lot of children behind. And uh, as a little girl, she grew up in this orphanage until she was a few years old and was adopted and she now lives in uh, California. Um, so interestingly, um, I found the place, uh, as I mentioned, it's now a historic site and, and a senior's apartment and I knocked on the door. Uh, the caretaker of the apartment uh, answered the door and she was a lovely, charming lady, uh, about my age, I suppose, and I told her that I was interested in writing a fictional story with uh, Ross Flats as the setting for it. Um, so she uh, invited me in, uh, served me a cup of tea, uh, took me for a, a tour of the entire uh, place. And ironically, um, her grandmother was the last matron uh, sometime in the past, uh, decades and decades ago, the last matron of Edmonton's uh, Ross Flats Children Home, the orphanage that I that I wrote about. Incidentally, at the time I wrote it, I had, uh, uh, I only figured that I had a setting I wanted to write about, uh, and I hadn't figured out any of the uh, characters or uh, plots yet. And incidentally, none of the characters or plots or events in my book are related to the Ross Flats uh, orphanage. They're completely uh, fictional. Right, right. Now, I know that in your bio, it says you're a semi-retired psychotherapist, but obviously uh, it's always dangerous. I guess we're all semi-retired in some way. I mean, I'm, uh, from from something that we've studied or loved or, or, or brought up in, um, obviously in this book, without giving too much away, there's a, there's a journey here um, for, for your, your, your protagonist, Patrick. Um, and 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 the and and he goes through these processes um, to try to discover more about himself. And I'll leave it there because I don't want to give too too much away. But I find that sometimes as a writer, when you're an expert in a field, it can be difficult because you know this field really well, right? Like you've got all the book learning, you have all the you have all the practical learning, but sometimes you know it so well that sometimes it's a little bit hard to pass that on, like to to connect with the reader. Yeah. Did you, how, how difficult is that when you feel like, okay, this is a field I know really well. Now I've got to share the story, but I understand there's people who are going to pick up this book who know absolutely nothing about what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know what? I, I really appreciate that question because actually I think it was a bit, a bit the opposite was uh, true uh, for me. Um, you know, frankly, I often find that the, uh, that the psychotherapist in the uh, movies and books is uh, oh, often uh, portrayed as simply a stoic kind of fellow that uh, asks uh, closed questions or leading questions or, or interferes with the stories of his own life. Um, so I welcome the opportunity to put on my therapy hat in writing this book. In my opinion, I, I made the uh, sessions interesting, and I think they reflected more some of the real um, uh, strategies that go into uh, being a therapist. Uh, certainly, um, 
uh, a good therapy session should feel like just a conversation. But with the training, there's there's a lot more in-depth things that we try to get after. So to answer your question, I um, I had a blast writing the uh, therapy sessions in the book because, uh, in my opinion at least, my uh, psychiatric social worker doesn't sound like a... a a dummy is uh, often how some psychotherapists are portrayed. Um, there was hypnosis in the book. Is did you, have you used hypnosis in the past? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, yeah, not to get too much into the story, but uh, yeah, hypnosis is was uh, one of the tools in my uh, psychotherapy toolkit, um, and I actually used uh, hypnosis. Um, uh, not, not certainly not in every session, but occasionally I used it. I found it to be a, an excellent way to work with uh, with anxiety. So, uh, and um, uh, in the, I might add, without giving away too much, that a, uh, that a therapist has to be very careful to use using hypnosis to recall events because people uh, have a powerful imagination if the therapist uh, suggests that something happened to them um, even as a question uh, the fertile minds of people will create something so uh, yeah so to answer your question hip hypnotherapy is very good in some cases and uh, has its limitations now you, you mentioned just a, a couple of answers back that that in a lot of pop culture the therapist is kind of portrayed as a stoic straight man I, I guess we could call it like a like character, right? That, yeah. uh, and, and your character, your Jesse, your therapist is not that. In fact, without getting too much in the book, you've given him some demons and you've given him a, yeah. a, a past, I guess yeah. I would say. And, you know, how important was it like to, to kind of break that mold uh, in terms of the characterization? Yeah. Yeah. I like the question. Um in reality, I think that a lot of people uh, that get into the uh, psychotherapy uh, sort of business have often are often dealing with their own demons. And I think sometimes they get into the field uh, as a way to study in depth, uh, ways to uh, sort of uh, boost the demons from their own lives. So uh, yeah, the character in my book, the psychotherapist, uh, psychiatric social worker certainly did have demons. Um, and I think that was pretty authentic uh, in terms of many therapists having dealt with their demons and their better psychotherapist for it if they uh, uh, de dealt with their own demons and they're more likely to help somebody else. Right, right. And uh, you, uh, I, I was really interested as well, because I mean, you were going back in time again to the 1950s and we understand this is a different time. And, you know, we're still wrestling with in this country with our relationship with our indigenous nations. Um, and you have a character in the book and really gets to the root of maybe how, how Indigenous people were seen or treated by social services 60 years ago. That maybe it's not that different than it is 20 years ago or 10 years ago or maybe even now. I, I'm not necessarily sure. But, you know, how important was that to, to sort of bring that to the fore in the book? Yeah, well, as a you know, as a psychotherapist and also as a, you know, having worked as a, as a social worker, uh, you do see how Native people um, 
uh, well, have an uphill battle. Now, um, when I speak of Indigenous issues, I have to be really careful because the Indigenous people really, you know, and rightly so, like to define their own issues rather than having you know, some old white guy <laughs> define their issues. Uh, but I think that most people uh, who read the book will um, uh, kind of relate to the struggles of 1950s uh, Indigenous people. And, I, and I'm not an expert on Indigenous people, but I am, you know, someone who's done psychotherapy and uh, social work with First Nations people. And I do have some sense of the, uh, the struggles they endure. So yeah, that's, yeah, good question. What was the inspiration for you to, to start writing uh, as someone who's done, you know, been through this, you know, um, you know, you have such a, a varied background from the outdoors part to the, mm -hmm. the psychotherapy. Um, what got you started in terms of, of taking that knowledge and taking that experience and saying there are stories that I can tell? Yeah, well, I think, um, I think the way that sort of evolved was that uh, I always really uh, enjoyed writing. And uh, I remember in grade, uh, grade two, I you know, sat down and hatched up a story that I wrote for my teacher. And uh, she made a, a uh, you know, she totally complimented me on it. And then when the superintendent came to the school, she showed it to him and he, uh, you know, indicated to me that he liked the story that he wrote. But the point being that I think inherent in me is a desire to write and to enjoy writing. And then as time went on, uh, looking for things to write about, I would sort of, as I believe every author does, they sort of incorporate life experience things into uh, their desire to, to write. And basically that's... Um, I think what happened for me uh, in terms of uh, I'm on my fifth book, but all my books are sort of bringing in my own life experience. And I suspect that that's the case for most writers. Right. And a question I think that that might be a bit of an evergreen question when, when whenever anyone is, is independently publishing their work is mm -hmm. how, how difficult is that to get that book into, I guess, into the common knowledge of, of readers, and get the book into readers' hands and get seen and get known about, um, you know, you have events like this tonight to introduce mm -hmm. yourself, but yeah. um, talk maybe a little bit about the challenges of, of promoting that and getting that book onto shelves or whether it's through your website or, or, or how, do you, how do you make those connections? Right. Well, it's a, it is a huge challenge. And um, I guess on the one hand, it's, it's extraordinarily easy. Uh, compared to seeking out traditional publishers. Uh, and I haven't really, well, except I think with my first book, I haven't even uh, sought out uh, traditional publishers. Um, I just didn't have a lot of patience. Uh, and I don't mean any respect, uh, disrespect to, to traditional publishers. Uh, but you certainly have to wait uh, like a year or more to uh, get a response. Uh, when you independently publish, you can set up your book, write it and print it for free. And uh, 
and have it marketed on Amazon. Um, a couple of things that are critical, I think, about that is one that it's critical to have it to have your book vetted because traditional publishers are a way to have books vetted because if a traditional publisher has published it you know that it has good material so one of the challenges is to uh, uh, is to have your book vetted so that there are really positive literary critiques on it so i i had um, you know online book club reviewed my book, gave me an excellent review. One of my other books has a really, in my view, a really excellent Kirkus review. And uh, Kirkus, in my view, is kind of a gold standard of, of good books. So that's a second challenge, is to have your book vetted so that there are literary critiques that are positive from uh, credible sources. Um, the marketing is is uh, tough. Uh, you know, I I would say I can't quit my day job if I had one <laughs> uh, with my writing. But uh, uh, you know, people are occasionally people buy my book off Amazon. Uh, occasionally, they uh, have heard about my book, and I can sell it personally. So I just have to say, you know, again, yeah, like I like the question because there's. Um, uh, there's a good part to independent publishing, and there's a, there's some big hurdles to jump. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, but but even getting reviewed in Kirkus as an independent book is 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 pretty is pretty good, um, because I think a lot of a lot of independent writers struggle to even find the chance to get their books reviewed or talked about. Um, 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 is there is there a lot of uh, getting in editors faces and and is there a lot of uh pounding the pavement are you going to bookstores and trying to say hey do, do each one saying will you carry x amount of copies uh uh here i am yeah, and yeah. You know, actually i i haven't i haven't done that um i'm not i'm not saying a person shouldn't um uh I find it's probably a bit counterproductive to get into editors' faces. Uh, I think they um, don't particularly like um, writers getting too aggressive with them. But certainly I could do a lot more in terms of approaching uh, retail stores and uh, getting my books on their shelves. I could do more with that. Um, the local libraries have indicated that they would be probably willing to book to put, uh, place my books in their library, but there's a process for it that I haven't uh, uh, gone gone through yet. So yeah, there is you know there is benefit to uh, pounding the pavement. I just I just haven't done that part. We've talked a lot about the, the orphan's journey, um, but I know you said you're working on on book number five. Yeah. So is there is there any? But before we before we go for the evening. Uh, any sort of preview, sneak preview, any kind of thoughts on what we might expect or what's what's coming down the road? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm really excited about the book that I'm currently writing. Uh, I'm about uh, two-thirds uh, finished it. Um, I like to uh, base my fictional books uh, to ground them somewhat in past uh, uh, real events. Uh, I don't know if too many people know. You've, I, I'm sure most people have heard of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, I suspect a lot of people don't know that the Sundance Kid actually worked for two years 
uh, on a ranch in southern Alberta between robbing uh, banks and trains in Montana. So my book is uh, sort of based on the Sundance Kid has a uh, not a major role in it, but uh, my main character is a, a young child, a young 15-year-old uh, boy trying to survive in a world of bullies and uh, looking for uh, a mentor and somebody to help him. And he winds up on this ranch with where the Sundance Kid uh, sort of takes him under his arm. And the Sundance Kid, I've studied him and read up on him. He's fairly notorious for sticking up for the underdog. Like it would be very typical of the Sundance Kid to take the side of a, of a young man that was being bullied. So that's kind of uh, what I'm projecting into my next book. Okay, great. All right. Well, I, you know, I appreciate the time and appreciate your, your, uh, your reading today and appreciate everyone else who's out there watching today uh, and has, has hopefully enjoyed uh, our session here with uh, author Dan Martin, again, an author's journey. And again, Dan, if you can just shout out your website to everyone, if they uh, want to check out your books. Uh, yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's very easy to remember. It's danmartinbooks.com. And uh, I have uh, I have two short stories and four novels listed on there. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about uh, my book as well. So I really right. appreciate it. All right, that's great. And uh, again, thanks everyone for joining us on the online reading series, the Writers Guild of Alberta. I'm Stephen Sandor signing off. And uh, thank you, thanks again uh, to Dan Martin for for joining us tonight. Thank you all for watching. My pleasure. Thank you.